Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welcome to the Cynic Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SupChina. Subscribe to SupChina's daily access newsletter to keep on top of all the latest news from China from hundreds of different news sources. Or check out all the original writing on our site at subchina.com, including reported stories, editorials, and regular columns, as well as a growing library of videos and, of course, podcasts. We cover everything from China's fraught foreign relations to its ingenious entrepreneurs, from the ongoing repression of Uyghurs and other Muslim peoples in China's Xinjiang region to China's ambitious efforts to eliminate poverty. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. We cover China with neither fear nor favor. I'm Kaiser Guo, coming to you today from my brother's place in the Telegraph Temescal neighborhood of Oakland, California, just a stone's throw, really, from my old alma mater. I am spending this week in Northern California, mostly to see my mom and uh, other family members here, but could not resist the opportunity to tape a show with a scholar I have long wanted to feature on Seneca. This show marks the first one that I have recorded in somewhere other than my house since February of 2020. Uh, let's hope that before some new variant, the Delta or something even worse manages to break through, uh, that I can at least get some good podcast recordings. And so today, I am delighted to be joined by Yi Xu, who is Assistant Professor of Political Science at Stanford. He is doing what I certainly consider to be some of the most interesting and important work on contemporary China in the social sciences. And he's also been working to help other scholars from China who are interested in modern social science methodology to really up their game and make great, really great contributions to the field. Long-time listeners to the show may recall that we spoke about some of Yi Qing's work, uh, specifically a paper on China's ideological landscape that he co-authored with Jennifer Pan, who, by the way, has also been on the show, uh, while he was still a doctoral student at MIT back in 2015. Today, we are going to revisit that work and much else that he's done in the years since, uh, as well as talk about the state of the field in a time not only of new tools and new methods, but also of you know political difficulties that have been posed by the precipitous deterioration of the U.S.-China relationship. In his academic work, Yi Qing has really had, I think, a dual focus. On the one hand, he is a, a methodologist developing new, or as he modestly says, new-ish methods for social science inquiry, uh, which the field, I think, really needs to improve in order to make the kinds of causal claims that, uh, you know, we really hope to be able to make based on our observational data. But his other focus is very much on China. Uh, methodology is something that has, I think, previously been dominated by Americanists, by people who focus on the United States. And Yi Qing, along with some of his peers, has been really at the forefront of bringing new approaches to social science work on on uh, that have been developed, you know, largely in the United States, but bringing them to bear on China. So much of this work has looked at areas that have been you know, ignored or even overlooked, things like public opinion in an autocratic state uh, that, you know, scholars dismissed, I think, uh, as either being impossible to actually do or or not actually relevant. And we'll talk about that. He and his peers are making, I think, really important contributions to understanding 
the dynamics of politics in China and perhaps of authoritarian states more broadly. So, Yiching, great to have you on the show at last, and thanks for driving all the way up here to Berkeley and sparing me a long BART and Caltrain ride. It's such a pleasure, uh, Kaiser. Yeah, you know, it was wonderful. I, I wish that we could have had the tape recorder running during our conversation over lunch just now. Went out to a Korean place nearby, and uh, man, this guy is fascinating. So even if I managed to capture just a tenth of, of what we uh, were talking about, that would be fantastic. But uh, let's start with some background about yourself, about your studies at, at Fudan and Beida, um, and then later on at M- MIT. And I guess you were, you, you're still affiliated with UCSD, right? Yes, I'm part of the... Uh, 21st Century China program. I'm still a affiliated scholar there. Oh, great, great, great. Um, and you started off as an economist, is that right? So I wouldn't uh, categorize myself as an economist, but I studied economics for a couple of years, for seven years, from college to my master's program where I uh, studied at uh, China Center for Economic Research. Oh, that's with Justin Lin, right? Yes, I took Justin's class. I think he makes a very important contribution to bring... Um, modern economics education to China, but also uh, study under uh, Professor Yao Yang. Oh, right, right, right. That's fantastic. And how did you make the transition? How did you get interested in political science after your background in economics? So I was actually uh, working with uh, Yao Yang and uh, Nancy Chen, who's also a very prominent economist working on China, on the village election uh, question in China. We used data uh, data back to the 1980s to study uh, the impact of village election. I was a work B for that project, RE for that project. And later, I started to uh, write a paper about it uh, in my as my master thesis. And then Professor Yao and uh, Nancy figured that maybe I can use this thesis to apply for policy programs in the United States. And I did that. Uh, so I chose to I chose to went to MIT as a result. So before we delve into some of your actual work, I thought actually we might spend a little time talking about the state of of. Uh, of the field and the debates specifically that you know I think in one way or another have raged for for a long time uh, between of different approaches to the study of China. I think you'd be a really good person to talk with about this. I think that most people who work on China are aware of this tension between, on the one hand, those who've emphasized you know, area studies, a more holistic approach, uh, one that emphasizes. Uh, inter- or multidisciplinary approaches and, and emphasizes things like language study, uh, a good steeping in the humanities and so forth. On the other hand, you have people who go for the more discipline-centered approach anchored in political science or in economics or anthropology or sociology or what have you, um, and who say, you know, you should tackle China from one of these disciplines, uh, mastering the tools of an individual discipline. It's something that, you know, Kevin Bryan at UC Berkeley has written about fairly recently. And then, so paralleling that, there's another debate on the the correct level of specificity that you should focus in on. There's some people who say you can't be too narrow. There's no such thing. The more narrow, the more limited in in time and in in geographic focus, the better. And on the other hand, there are people who say, no, no, you know, you'll, you'll lose the the forest for too much focus on the trees that way. And I think a third maybe debate is one, you know, between people who emphasize a more qualitative approach and a more quantitative approach. And that's been sharpened, I think, very much in the last few years uh, by advances in data science and in artificial intelligence. So talk talk about that. I've always theorized that there's kind of a clustering that happens where you see people fall who fall on one side of this debate always fall on the same side of the other two debates. So that the people who champion quantitative also want narrower focuses and also want a discipline 
focused approach. Whereas people who are area studies tend to go for more qualitative and broader focuses. Uh, first of all, I mean, does it cluster that way? <laughs> you know, you're a social scientist. And, um, also, wh- how do you feel about that? And where do you, where do you feel like you come down? Cause you are a quantitative guy. I mean, that's how I guess most people would describe you. Well, I, I think you have a very keen eye. Uh, I do observe there are different types of work, qualitative, quantitative, and maybe uh, mixed methods. Uh, but the way I think about it is not um, which way is better. Uh, I very much actually agree with uh, Kevin's article recently published. Yeah, we'll put a link to it. Yeah, yeah very much agree with uh, Kevin's article. But the, the way I think about it is that it's actually a very uh, interactive uh, approach to me. So what does that mean? So for me, every study is qualitative in essence uh, and can be combined with quantitative data. What the, uh, it means that because we have so much uh, variables uh, in our in our society, um, the, the role of social scientists are very different from the role of physical scientists um, because we have to extract the important uh, elements from the society to study. Um, there may be a million variable that can be measured out there. Why do we focus on these three variables and write a paper about it? And very often to evaluate how important a, a work is uh, is based on uh, the research experience and the, the consensus of the field. So that I think in order to get that intuition about importance of a work, you need to talk to people, you need to understand where the de- debate is. So without knowing the reality, it's very difficult for you to even develop research questions. Then the quantitative method to me is more about uh, generalization or confirming uh, what you observed uh, from your qualitative work. Because people are suffering always uh, from a lot of behavioral biases like uh, confirmation bias or validability bias. We, try, we tend to believe in what we see. But without a proper counterfactual, we don't know whether that is something really special. So in order to really pin that down, we need to collect data. That's one thing. Another thing is uh, we get some anecdotes from a few people around us. And there's a phenomenon called homophily, right? We, we like to talk right. to people that are similar to us. Uh, we don't know whether our conclusion based on our personal experiences can be extended to a bigger crowd. Uh, that's where uh, data can play a bigger role. So we're familiar with homophily. We're familiar with confirmation biases and availability biases. These are a lot of common weaknesses to the more qualitative approach. You know, uh, like my knowledge of China is based mostly just on anecdotally just talking to people. Well, I, I don't, yeah, I don't try to portray that way. But I think that to be a really good qualitative scholar, you need a lot of experience. Yeah. Uh, you need to, uh, to talk to many people. You need to sometimes be a historian to really tease out the uh, t- uh, the important elements uh, of your finding from the uh, noises right. um but um but as a um but once you have that intuition you can test that hypothesis you develop in your qualitative work uh, with data right. that's that's my personal ap- uh, approach but of course uh, qualitative scholars or scholars primarily using uh, um qualitative methods can have their own uh, way to do research. So, I mean, as I was saying, there's familiar failings, I think, of the qualitative approach. What about the quantitative approach? Would you be able to identify some of the pitfalls, um, you know, the disadvantages or weaknesses that you see the more, I mean, a lot of people are moving more toward quantitative approaches. What are they missing? 
Yeah, of course, there are a lot of lousy, not so good qualitative uh, research papers out there as well. And I would even say that it's uh, easier to write a not so great um, paper uh, with qualitative methods because it's so tempting. So actually, the phenomenon you just described, I want to um, get some, just give you some additional background uh, based on my observation during the past few years. I think it's a, it's a knowledge sociology argument. The entire field of political science is changing uh, because of the introduction of more statistical methods and, I would say, inf infiltration of uh, some concepts from economics. In our daily language, we talk about principal agent problems, we talk about information asymmetry. These are concepts developed by uh, economists, which are very important uh, and powerful concepts to analyze social problems. And because of the introduction of data analytical methods and these uh, models based on rational choice models, the, the entire field of political science is converging. And um, this creates an incentive for young students to invest more in acquiring uh, those data analytical skills and acquiring some of the uh, modeling skills um, from economics. Because they find that maybe with those skills, they, it's easier for them to find jobs beyond the, uh, the China field. Right. You can go get a job at Facebook, right? <laughs> well, some of our graduate students actually did find jobs at Facebook and have a pretty happy life right now. <laughs> we'll see for how long. <laughs> um, because we all have a time allocation problem. We have very limited time, although most people spend five, six years in grad school. Um, you spend the first two years uh, taking classes and maybe uh, learning how to write code, learning how to analyze data quanti quantitatively if you pursue that route. And then maybe you spend another year trying to find a topic. You don't actually uh, have much time uh, left for you to really understand the society that you're interested in studying. So that's, the, I think, the right now the problem because uh, it's so tempting to write papers with beautiful uh, data visualization, and it's easier to communicate with other people uh, with the data for those who have um, very limited knowledge of uh, the context of your problem. They, they may think they understand um, better with the facility of facilitation of data. But that's a, that kind of incentive actually makes people spend more time on acquiring those skills instead of understanding the social content. That's a potential pitfall. And we are on a clock. Most of the PhD students, junior scholars inc included, um, are um, pressured to publish papers. Uh, these incentives combined um, actually um, push people to write quick papers with data uh, and maybe some complex method, then uh, conducting interviews or really knowing their problems or trying to find intuitions uh, from their uh, field work. I think that's very insightful. That's uh, really, really well put. I'm, I'm curious, as somebody who straddles the world of Chinese scholarship and, and U.S. scholarship, do you find that there are different research interests that seem to fascinate um, maybe non-Chinese people who work in the social sciences on China and people with an ethnic background in China, or people like you who, who spent the first, what, 20 years of your life in China? Well, I don't see that that way. There are scholars like uh, my colleague Jin Oi or uh, Melanie Mania, who I also see as one of my mentors. They are not Chinese nationals, but they know China very well. They spent tons of time in China doing field work and also collect data uh, in, in, in the case of uh, 
in both cases, actually. Actually, I see a potential problem for young scholars working on China who spent not much time in China. So, of course, there's a constraints, um, political and now in the pandemic. Um, but because of the uh, current curriculum and the time constraint, we didn't have much actually experience in China. This may be a slightly better for Chinese national, but not too much. Hmm. Like just speaking of me, I I, I was I grew up in uh, Shanghai. I spent most time most of my time uh, in the cities, well, and in university and in schools. Right? I actually don't have too much time to talking to people on the street and in, in the countryside. Actually, right. I study uh, rural elections, but I only spend limited time in the countryside. Um, and for students who came to the States for college and pursue a PhD, even though they're Chinese, they, I would say um, they actually, uh, one of our problems is that we don't have a real sense of where the policy debates are, what are, what are people's struggles. And it is also a challenge for us to find important questions to study. Um, this, of course, also travels to uh, non-Chinese students who want to study China. That, that makes a lot of sense, yeah, for sure. Let's let's start plunging into some of your work uh, that you've done over the years and, and look at some of the papers that I thought were particularly interesting and important. Uh, some of this work deals, as I think I've mentioned, with ideology. I mean, ideology is a major feature here. So before we get started, maybe let's offer up an operational definition of what we mean when we're talking about ideology, because it means something in a Chinese context and in an American context. But in this specific social science context, what do we mean? For sure. Ideology is probably the most confusing term uh, in the social science. Some people actually make that argument. You can take a uh, critical approach to the term ideology, like Karl Marx did. And when you hear the ideology of the, of the CCP in Western media, it also has a negative connotation. It feels like a, a governmental regime. Uh, use various methods like censorship propaganda to conceal the truth from the people. Uh, it has a connotation like that. So in our work, we we very much take a value-neutral approach to ideology, which is essentially a belief system or any belief system that are ideas and attitudes uh, with some constraint. Some ideas um, go with other ideas. You tend to agree on these things. You also tend to agree on so you agree mean, on one thing and then tend to agree on another thing. They're not bound logically. You can't deduce one from the other. But it, you're talking about the instance that, for example, uh, it, it happens that most people who are ideologically conservative in the United States believe in limiting a woman's right to choose in abortion, but also support the death penalty. And these are not logically connected in any meaningful way, but they tend to occur in the same person. That, that constraint counts, right? That makes them part of an ideology. There may be a logical underpinning uh, for certain policy preferences, but of course it's very much specific to societies. Right, 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 right. And in, in that case, it's not always obvious. So that's that's great. Um, and one of the sources of the, the work that you've done on Chinese ideology is this uh, massive uh, thing called the Chinese Political Compass data set. Uh, and I want to get into what that data is, uh, how it came together, how large of a set it is, and, and the representativeness of the set, how it's been used, and, and maybe what's happened to the set since you did that work back in, uh, what's like six years ago? 
Uh, I know you've looked into this issue um, and other people have used that set as well. So can you talk about the Zuo Biao set? It was actually a, a pretty funny story behind it. Um, the Zuo Biao data was released, if I remember correctly, on April Fool's Day 2014 uh, by a guy whose, uh, whose shooter name, whose alias is Mu Yao online. So I was like following um, his social media uh, he was, uh, and then he said, I'm going to release this data. So, okay, so this uh, uh, later become a friend of mine, um, person Mu Yao, who compiled uh, 60 questions in 2007. He's a Beida alumni. Mm-hmm. While he was at Beida, he uh, was chatting with people on BBS in Beida, uh, trying to model uh, a model based on the British uh, political compass survey mm-hmm to develop a survey to measure ideology or political preferences of the Chinese public. That's their, uh, that's their uh, little project in 2007. Now basically, they, then they basically put this set of questions online, just like any uh, psychological survey that you, you've done, uh, you come across online. And over the years, um, a couple million people filled out that survey. Mm-hmm. Most of these uh, people from surveys are not surprisingly, college, college students, uh, many of them are male, actually, in the, in the day, if you look at the data. Mm-hmm. In 2014, seven years later, because the, the website is blocked uh, by the Chinese government, and uh, Muyao decided to release the data, so uh-huh. put the data in the public. And we, uh, and Jen, Jennifer and I, Jennifer Panet, so my call to Jennifer and I, Stanford, yeah. yeah, we saw this data and started to analyze the data. Uh, so speaking about the representativeness of the data, um, so f- this is the first time, so we, we were always interested in studying belief system of the Chinese public. We have some vague ideas uh, by talking to people, but we don't really know how they look like and what are the constraints, whether they're uh, multiple dimension, things like that. We can talk more about that. Uh, but So we were very excited when we get hands on uh, this data set. Uh, but very quickly we realized there's a big problem of the data, which is its representativeness, or not even to mention the representativeness, just the uh, how diverse the data are. Most of the respondents uh, of the data set of the uh, who fill out the Zuo Biao survey are actually college uh, students uh, who mostly are male. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's uh, that's a pity. I mean, I know that you 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 we were aware of this as you approached the the research. Was there a way to clean the data? Was there any way at all to? Uh, I know that there are techniques that can be used. Uh, to extrapolate from that, but if it's too overwhelmingly from uh, you know one specific demographic, as seems to be the case, it would be. But it, 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 it still, it doesn't render it meaningless. It it still gives a really, I would say, it gives a very good uh, profile of an important segment of Chinese society, right? Uh, we we did a little bit of that because the data are massive. You still have a couple thousand people who are older who have lower education. Uh, who are female, so we we can do some uh, reweighting to make the data look more balanced than it, than it actually are. So we did that in the paper, uh, but of course there's a you can only do do as much the data the data allow you to do. Right, right, right. So I know you've um you know you also Jason Wu who's now at, at Indiana and who was at UCSD. Uh, You've talked about whether these categories uh, that we would tend to want to extract, like left and right, they're politically meaningful at all. I mean, do they have any meaning in the Chinese context? Because I mean, we were we were talking, we were chatting earlier, and you were you were saying how 
for Americans, most people are able to self-identify uh, as you know their, their political convictions as being either left or right. Uh, and while they can, in China, answer specific policy position questions, it still doesn't map onto something that is either left or right, even though these concepts are used in political discourse in China. How, how does that work? Why is that, uh, that mapping impossible or more difficult? So first of all, I'm very glad that you mentioned Jason's work, who also uh, made a lot of contribution to uh, this study, the study of uh, Chinese ideology. Uh, we also talk about collaboration as well. Um, so to, to answer your question, I think it's not actually not surprising to me that most Chinese that we survey, and also Jason surveyed, uh, do not have a symbolic understanding of ideology. What does that mean? It means if you ask them, to place themselves on a left-right spectrum, most people would put themselves as neutral or I don't know. 70% or more people wow. would, would do that. Um, you can interpret as being fearful. Or they don't want to um, reveal their political preferences, uh, especially in this way, because there are negative connotations on being rightist or being extreme leftist in the Chinese history. But my um, personal belief by doing this a couple of times is that most people generally do not have clear idea mm. because the lack of electoral competition to organize beliefs. Right. And, and we, in, in, in the political discourse, we rarely talk about that these days in the reform era. That's interesting. Um, I mentioned in 2015, we actually did a podcast about the paper Chinese Ideological Spectrum uh, that you published with Jennifer Pan. I, I went back and listened to it. I was pretty disappointed. I don't think we got into it as much as I would have liked, but uh, I, I want to talk about that work, though, and the paper that you followed up with, which was also with Jennifer a few years later. Let, let's let's do this. Let's imagine that you're testifying in front of, say, a congressional committee or a State Department or a, a National Security Council uh, fact-finding group or something like that. And, and they ask you, without going into all the detailed minutiae of your methodology, and we're going to just assume that it's all completely sound, uh, which I think is a safe assumption here. What would you say are the most important features of the ideological landscape in China? How should we think about the major ideological orientations that you'd find among ordinary Chinese people? And, and how are these affected by, you know, different uh, things like geography or income or education level? First of all, our beliefs um, also involves because the, because of the new findings and new samples and new methods. I think this is how science should work. Um, um, to give example, in the 2015 paper uh, where we used Zuobiao data, uh, as I said, because it's um, less diverse, we see a very high correlation across domains. So let's say people have preference in the political domain, in the economics domain, in the social domain, we find that their preference are highly correlated, up to 70%. Uh, this may be due to the fact that they are more knowledgeable elite college students. While we are conducting a similar survey, but ba based on Zuo but we re revised uh, some of the questions and fixed some of the survey issues, we find a much lower correlation across different domains. Interesting. And Jason also found that in, in his work. So that's, the, so that's how some of the findings uh, have changed. But to answer your question on what the, um, based on our current understanding, what we can say about the uh, policy preference or political preferences of the Chinese public. There are a couple points. Uh, first of all, I think the, so at first, let me say, uh, a fraction of the Chinese public and a, 
a significant fraction of the Chinese public that we surveyed have pretty stable preferences in issue domains. By stable, let's make sure you, we understand what you mean. That means temporally, across time, they don't change. That's something that we tried uh, in the second paper. We surveyed people once asking a bunch of questions, and then a couple months later, we asked those, que- those questions again. We also have a sample of college students. We ask questions every uh, similar questions every six months and to see whether their preferences are stable. It looks like for a large chunk of the uh, survey respondents that we surveyed, their preference in several of the issue domains are very stable, like their pre- political preferences, uh, their preferences for market-oriented reform, their social preferences are uh, pretty uh, stable. So this this has policy implications, which means although China is not an electoral democracy, there can be meaningful constraints on policies because of the preference of people. Interesting. So you don't see that kind of almost one-dimensional clustering just where you found people in one quadrant who were... uh, pro-market reform, politically liberal, and sort of cult- uh, socially liberal, all clustered in the same you know quadrant. And then people who were statist, you know, who, in other words, who wanted more uh, market participation by the state, uh, people who were m- more culturally conservative, who tended to answer questions about, say, you know, the importance of Confucianism or, or so forth, and uh, who had... Uh, well, I guess um, that that makes sense to me that that you would see more dimensionality to it now, um, because one of the things that that I had a problem with in the first batch, the one thing that didn't jive with my understanding of people, is how I didn't feel like there was enough questions included to determine attitudes toward nationalism or toward nation. Um, did that show up in the, in the second round more? Yeah, actually, um, uh, a little bit more on the dimensionality. Um, um, our audience may be more familiar with ideological space in the U.S., where most uh, political scientists believe there's one dimension. There's only one dimension. The social or racial dimension and the economic dimension are collapsed into one because of uh, fierce party competition. So right. basically, um, ordinary people's preferences are organized uh, by the least they follow. Uh, that's a, one of the uh, very popular series in American politics. But I think compared with the uh, with the United States, the preferences of the uh, Chinese public, although we find they're stable, but they're more diverse and they're less polarized mm. because of the lack. Our conjecture is that because of lack of uh, party competition or electoral competition. Right. Oh, that makes sense. And 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 I, I we we do also find that. Uh, a lot of the uh, preference in different issue areas are connected with national identity or preferences uh, related to sovereignty or foreign affairs. So in the new survey, we actually have 14 questions uh, looking at that. The old survey, yeah, I, I, I found, I mean, and I talked about that in that 2015 podcast, I felt like there weren't enough questions that seemed specifically to draw people on attitudes toward you know sovereignty and territoriality and things like that. One criticism, and I think that you know you talk about this in the background to to that second paper especially, is is there's this tendency to argue among some people that you really can't have meaningful and coherent policy preferences in authoritarian states because 
they're manipulated, you know, by the state itself through through censorship, through propaganda and and coercion. Uh, and then another criticism is, okay, so maybe people do, but does that even matter? Because they there isn't a mechanism by which those policy preferences translate into policy. How would you speak to to those cri- lines of critique? Well, I think people around the world are similar in terms of how minds works, but the social contexts are vastly different. There is also fierce debate in the United States, uh, so in the in American politics, about whether people have firm, organized beliefs or ideology. Uh, one group of people, scholars will say they don't. They have policy attitudes. They have moods, and those moods will change very quickly because of the discourse of the elites, as probably we have seen in over the past few years. Some of the conservative policy preference have changed. But that's a, that's a debate still not resolved, uh, and I think it's a, it's a similar thing in China. People, because of the the environment they grew up, because of their social and economic well beings, they develop some ideas, and some ideas go hand in hand with other ideas, and their preference for particular policy or politi- particular uh, political institution may be shifted by information that they they gather. By threat that they perceive from other country, that's all possible. But these two things are not the the fact that they have relatively stable preferences on, or belief system, and that the fact that uh, their preference in certain uh, certain issues can be changed. These two are not contradictory. Right, right, right. You ask me what I uh, want to convey to uh, potential policymakers uh, with our study. I think the, just to follow up on your point on nationalism, a lot of the policy preferences are connected to the national identity, and, it's, and especially the narrative of uh, China's suffering from a hundred years of uh, humiliation and, and, and renaissance in recent years, uh, led by the Communist Party of China. I think that's a very strong na- narrative and play a more and more important role in recent years. So one question we get asked a lot, and we are very interested in answering, is whether young people are becoming more political liberal or socially liberal and more pro-democracy compared with older generations. Right? This is actually a hard question because technically it's difficult to distinguish age from cohort effects. Uh, but by collecting some data, you, we start to see that young people in China. Are becoming the young generations are more socially liberal. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're open to uh, same-sex marriage. They're, they're open to um, uh, so on and so forth. But politically, um, we we see that the, the the trend of becoming more political liberal has paused in recent in recent years. It's interesting. Yeah, you you, you uh, I think you were quoted actually in this piece uh, by Stephanie Studer. Uh, in the Economist, where I think she, she probably interviewed, I believe she did interview you for, for yeah, we chatted on, uh, on Young Chinese, yeah, and uh, that was her her finding as well that the uh, socially they were more socially liberal, but maybe more nationalistic at the same time, or more. I think the word we liked was confident in in uh, in, in in the country uh, at the same time. That's really fascinating. Uh, and we're going to get into a little bit about that longitudinal study that you're doing uh, on Chinese college students and their counterparts studying in the United States uh, in just a little bit. Let me ask you, though, first about another paper that you did, a recent one from this spring, that examined millions of social media posts on Weibo about COVID-19 to understand whether the pandemic triggered public anger and, and weakened support for the Chinese uh, leadership 
or not. I mean, studies have shown that in times of crisis, the public will naturally look to specific targets to, you know, to, to blame and, and to find responsibility uh, and to make sense of events. But at the same time, people also tend maybe to double down on their support for existing institutions. And so, you know, in order to find some actual, you know, sense of, of safety, whether symbolic or, or real, help us understand how this balance and how this tug of war played out in public sentiment um, on Weibo at the outset of, of the pandemic. So first of all, I'd like to say the motivation to do this study are twofold. Uh, one is it is very difficult to get real-time public opinion survey in China, right? Speaking to a concern that you mentioned early, because we lack the technology or ability to do such surveys right now in China, so we turn to uh, Weibo, a social media platform where we can uh, on real time see how people are responding to events. And secondly, we are in, in, the, in the US media platform when COVID-19 first broke out, there's a lot of debate or conversation about whether this is a Chernobyl moment for China. Right. And I am also a Weibo uh, user. I observed a lot of negative comments on the government, especially local government's actions. And, but I also see a lot of support, right? To answer the question of uh, what's the balance between support and the criticism against the government or of uh, the healthcare workers, we really need to look at the data to right. get a real sense. That's that's why we conduct this study. Right. And what did you find? <laughs> what we find is that there are three spikes of criticism uh, and of, always accompanied by uh, support uh, of a comparable um, size uh, at, at, at the very early stage of the pandemic. So the first one is, uh, is at the Wuhan lockdown. And then uh, there are a few um, controversy of the medical supplies uh, and then the third one is the uh, Li Wenliang. Yeah, passed away of the Dr. Li Wenliang. Uh, the ophthalmologist who uh, wrote a, a Weibo message, in fact, that was del- or a Weixin message that was deleted, and uh, he was uh, called to account for that. Uh, and then he subsequently died, as you say. Very, very sad. Um, yeah, I mean, probably no surprises there, though. Um, I wouldn't say that. I actually, what's surprising to me is that, is that the amount of uh, support is comparable to uh, the amount of uh, criticism online, at least if we only count the original posts, there there are some technical issues uh, we encounter, which makes it very difficult to count reshares. Um, but if we look at the original posts, the number of posts are similar. And most of them are posted by ordinary users. I mean, it seems, though, that how the government responds uh, to any crisis, whether it's, you know, 2008 and the earthquake or anything, that has a huge impact on, on public sentiment. So what, in the case of Weibo users in the early days of COVID-19, uh, was more impactful? Was it the suppression of information regarding the virus? Or was it the quick action and aggressive measures that were adopted to counter its spread? I mean, how did and the reactions change over time in, in response to these? And if you had to say, uh, pronounce, you know, was it the censorship that was more effective or was it actually the the actions that were taken that seemed to have shaped public opinion more? We tried to look into this question because we got one sample uh, that is that have both pre-censored data and post-censored data. Right. These, these are collected on real time. Basically, you uh, scan the, the user's uh, timeline and 15 minutes 
later you scan again, you see whether of the whether some of the posts are are removed. Uh, we don't see uh, at the, at least at the early stage of the COVID nineteen crisis, we don't we don't see a large amount of censorship uh, for criticism over local governments. Most of the criticism are targeting local were targeting local government at that time. So I'm, it also strikes me as a surprise. Uh, during those days, I, I saw a lot of posts among my friends and among people I follow, uh, which are negative about the about the Wuhan and the Hubei government. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. In the study, what we find is that um, um, although it's not anything remotely causal, we do see uh, in a time series fashion there are more support showing up after quick action of the central government, and also the some of the some of the quick reactions by other local governments like the Shanghai Municipal Government or Zhejiang Government, who did a pretty good job of locking down and screening people and doing testing. Right, right, right. So let's talk about another one of your papers, which you co-authored with your Stanford colleagues, uh, Fan Yingjie and Jennifer Pan, and Shao uh, Zijie at Zhongguo传媒大学. Uh, you looked at discrimination experienced in the United States among Chinese students and uh, how it has impacted attitudes, interestingly, toward authoritarian rule in China. Can you talk about a little bit about the research design of that, how you put that together, and what your study found? I thought that was fascinating. Thank you. Um, this was actually a uh, larger study that we plan to, to do over the next few years. So we plan to follow 800 students, Chinese students, in both, Chi in both Chinese universities and American universities for four years. So basically, we surveyed them right after they landed in the U.S. or start their um, uh, university college life in China, and we do the first round survey, and then every six months we do another survey. And we, in the second round of survey, suddenly COVID broke out, and then uh, we observe a lot of episodes of uh, hate crimes against Asian Americans and Asians, mm -hmm. and and also. Um, online commentators against Chinese. So we embed experiment in the second wave of this study. But we will keep doing these this, uh, longitudinal studies uh, with these 800 students. So was it discrimination, policy discrimination, like visa policies and things like that? Or were we looking at like uh, instances of hate crime? Or what was what constituted discrimination? Were you only looking at, at governmental discrimination? Or were you also looking just at societal discrimination? Um, okay, so the design is what we call a survey experiment where we randomly show people different um, information. In the control group, we show people um, the follow, following uh, the death of uh, uh, Dr. Li Wenliang, uh, commentary by Chinese commentators on Weibo, look like on Weibo, critical of the Chinese government, mm -hmm. its action, local government's action. So then we have two treatment groups. In one treatment groups, we have the, a very similar article, a real article um, by U.S. media followed by American commentators critical of the uh, Chinese government. Mm -hmm. That's the first treatment. And then the second treatment is the same article followed by American comments, uh, not only critical of the but Chinese. With racist language. It was also racist language against Chinese, like diets and other things. All right, right. Eating bats and blah, blah, yeah. blah. Right, right, right. And um, the second treatment compared with the control condition uh, increased the probability of respondents saying that they don't want to change with the, with the, any change with the political system. Mm -hmm. While mm -hmm. comparing 
the control condition and the first treatment, which is also American commentators critical of uh, the Chinese government and their actions in at the early stage of COVID-19 does not show a difference. Right. So which means basically the students we survey, they're okay with receiving critical comments at About least the at that time. Handle, handling of the Li Wenliang thing. But if they added that, that, that variable of racist commentary, of discriminatory commentary, then suddenly their support for authoritarianism is, is yeah, elevated. The, the support I mean, for the political status how quo increased. How, how, is it statistically significant? Well, yes, yeah, well, by obviously. our standard it is, but uh, it can be a short-term effect because afterward they receive a lot of dosage of uh, treatment from the real life. So we wouldn't know um, how, how strong the effect was. Right, that's how it goes in real life. Uh, yeah, so I thought it was a fascinating, fascinating one. Um, I mean, it has clear theoretical implications, I think, but also relevant, relevant policy implications. Um, would it be too simplistic for me to suggest that if there were a way for the U.S. to miraculously, you know, eliminate discriminatory policies aimed at China and you know, eliminate discrimination toward Chinese, that suddenly, you know, it would maybe restore some of the Chinese student support for, you know, democratization of efforts in China. I mean, we've talked about this before. We've talked about how, you know, in the last year or so, the luster of American, the American beacon has some of the lusters come off it. And, you know, over lunch, we, the, one of the, the things that many things that we were talking about was how, you know, a lot of your friends, especially ones who are in STEM fields back in China, um, who used to be real fans of American, uh, the American political system have, uh, really, really soured on it. Uh, and this is something that we've all observed anecdotally. I mean, I've seen this happen in so many of my friends as well. Uh, it's, you know, is it just the, the could, would that be reversed if we were to remove all the racist commentary? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, but before we delve into that, I want to put a qualification uh, on what you just said. Even after exposure to so much uh, racism and hate crimes in the real real life, we still observe that students, Chinese students in the U.S., are more political liberal and socially liberal and less nationalistic than their counterparts. In China, both right. are in. That's a baseline thing. Right, that's a baseline thing, which is still very strong. We don't know whether it's about U.S. education or um, their interaction with Americans and with other people, or simply selection. There, um, this group of students are selected into American institutions. Their uh, interest. Their before they come to the they come to the United States, they are uh, more socially and economically liberal. Yeah. So we don't know that, but. To answer a question, I, I, I really don't know because the, the the media has its own logic to to run self. It really does, yeah. Well, you know, speaking of Chinese students in America and Chinese students here, you, you've talked about this uh, being part of this big, ambitious longitudinal study, uh, and you were kind enough to share some of the early findings of that with me. Can you give our listeners a preview of what kinds of questions are driving the next rounds of research based on this longitudinal study and maybe share some of your, your latest you know, preliminary findings. Uh, sure. This was actually a pilot study. So we plan to run more in following years. Uh, but because of the pandemic, we couldn't reach out to people and do a larger scale survey. So this is right. still fairly small in scale, only 300 people across about 60 U.S. universities. Mm. And we have RAs in multiple universities to reach out to students. This is this is was extremely difficult uh, during the pandemic, so, so we course. didn't do that. Um, in China, 
we recruit students from three uh, elite universities. And the third round and the fourth fourth round, we talked about the racism experiment is on the is in the second round. And in the in the third wave and fourth wave, uh, we are interested in questions in this question of whether uh, what criteria uh, students from China use to evaluate a good governance, uh, a good uh, party, uh -huh. a, a good government. Um, very preliminary results show that compared with their counterparts in China, uh, students, Chinese students in the U.S. seem to value procedural justice more when evaluating uh, a, a party, a, a government. Rule of law. Rule of law, some elements of election, freedom of speech, ah, things like that, okay. which gives me, gives me some um, The beacon is not hope. completely dimmed. <laughs> um, but, but this is all comparative. They also uh, value a great deal the... Um, uh, performance of the government, efficacy, responsiveness, income equality, things like that. Yeah, uh, you know the work that you do is just so so fascinating to me. And uh, but I I still can't help but want to ask you this. I'm I'm always curious. Do you think that somebody who has a good intuition, just based on just lots of interactions with people from different you know social economic strata in China, and who really you know does pay attention to political discourse in China, uh, you know through their reading and through through online you know interactions, through conversations with family and with friends, uh, would they measure up in terms of accuracy compared to the survey results? I mean, somebody like you. Um, I mean, you probably wouldn't be surprised, I think, by too much of what the data yields up. I can't imagine you you being completely shocked at, at the results that you come up with. I mean, I wonder, I, I, I appreciate, I, I'm all for for doing what you're doing often because it confirms what I already believe. No, that's, that's, not, that's not fair. I, I really do think it's valuable. But I wonder if we aren't maybe focusing so much on quantitative uh, methods that we're not maybe trusting the well-honed instincts of people who are really steeped in the qualitative stuff enough. Because I, I still, like, if I only had a choice, if I could read one quantitative study or I could talk to one of the the, the people who, who are on the ground and in touch, I mean, I would almost rather trust your instincts in a conversation than trust the data that you, you come up with. Is that? Well, as I said earlier, I think data plays a facilitating role to either confirm or eliminate hypotheses. And these hypotheses are developed by people with experiences and by talking to real people on the ground. Right. So I think you cannot um, um, skip the first step. And then and that's actually why I, I see a lot of not so great paper, like the quantitative papers where um, researchers get data and then try to get something out of data without any experiences or uh, on the on the ground. That's the. Ooh, that's I was, the you were joke. You made a joke over lunch uh, today, and when I I talked about data driven, and you corrected me. So no question driven. I think that's significant. You 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 still believe that it's the question that should drive the research. Of course, of course, yeah. because there, as I said, there, are, um, infinite number of questions that you can study with data, and there are abundance of data right now. So which question to study uh, matters a lot, and and my personal experience is also the case that. If you have some good intuition, the chance that you can confirm this with data is much higher. Uh, right. It also makes the publication process easier for young <laughs> scholars, if that matters. Yeah, no, if that matters. I mean, you get that, that but, infographic, right? But I want to uh, add on, on top of that, uh, is I think the, the um, um, intuition and the, the, the ability to develop concepts 
are very important, and this is very difficult to. This kind of skills is very difficult to acquire. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, do people still use Delphic methods, for example? I mean, can you Delphic? Delphic, you know, you, Delphic is when you 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 survey a bunch of experts. You ask the, a whole bunch of people who are experts, and uh, I mean, I, I I haven't seen anything done like that in the China field for a very long long time. It'd be kind of interesting to see. Anyway, I I kind of am missing my uh my my former life as an ac- academic. Sometimes when it's really fun to be able to read a bunch of papers and uh and get get back into it and and try to keep current on it. I've got one more question for you, which um I let's see how you. What do you think of this? Do you, do you think political science research on China, uh, especially people who are uh, themselves from China, is coming under pressure in the, in this worsening era of Sino-American relations? I mean, are you or your colleagues facing pressure to shape your research or uh, change the sorts of questions that are driving your research in response to the current environment? I mean, my sense is that on the one hand, uh, it's a good thing because, you know, we obviously don't understand authoritarianism or Chinese nationalism or sources of regime support uh, as well as we should. And maybe because of this increasingly competitive environment, we're incentivized to better understand these things. And maybe that's driving research that you would already otherwise be doing. But I can, I can imagine a downside to it too, where, uh, you know, there's sort of the, the, the questions are more pointedly toward national security uh, focused data. Right. So first of all, personally, I don't see, I don't feel any pressure from either my school or my peers or my colleagues to do certain type of research or not do certain type of research. And I very much appreciate the, um, um, the opportunity they give us so far. Um, personally, in academia, I haven't encountered major discrimination as an Asian man. Um, but I do think um, the uh, the themes are changing in the field. Mm. A few years ago, a lot of young scholars are working on a certain term, resilience. Mm-hmm. Resilience. Yeah, uh, it's a very um, popular idea back then, and now more people are studying censorship. Uh, thanks to my Stella colleague Molly Robust yeah. and, and Jennifer Pan, Gary King's early early work. But a lot of people are studying propaganda censorship. Uh, surveillance and uh, repression. That's a change of theme. But let me try to approach this question slightly differently. Um, so the way I see it is that there are several different types of research. So one type is more topical or more related to policy implication. You can directly see why we study this because there's a demand for that. Right. And many of these research are important, um, at least at, at that moment, and can have lasting impact. Uh, another two type of research are more related to us as social scientists or us as historians, quote unquote. What does that mean? So as social scientists, we want to find, I don't know whether that's possible ultimately, that's a philosophical question, but ultimately we want to find certain rules or mechanisms that can be generalized to different societies mm-hmm, to mm-hmm. deepen our understanding of mankind. Um so that's the, our role as a social scientist. But it's extremely difficult. As I said earlier, the society is so complex. There are millions of variables. Which variable to, um, to look at is, is the first order question. And we also have a role of being a historian. I think you can relate to that. 
um, for a short time horizon. If historians look at history, maybe a thousand years ago, uh, two hundred years ago, but we social scientists maybe take a short time horizon. We look at history happening right now or during the past ten, twenty years, where we can get gather better data. Um, as historians, you also have a choice of which aspect of society or politics or you want to look at. You're making an active choice mm -hmm. when you select a topic, but you can be more value neutral. You can be, um, you can take a position that I want to keep a record of what's happening now, such that uh, other the historians of next generation can see, can understand better our society right now. So I see my research. I trying to uh, play multiple roles uh, when I develop my, my research. Some of the topics are research topics are more relevant to debate happening right now, like the racism paper. Um, and some of them are I try to speak to more general social science. Um, um, I won't say rules, but um, lessons that we can generalize to sure. other contexts. And we also want to keep record. Uh, for future generation of social scientists or historians. I don't know whether it's a too bold of a claim, but this makes me sane. This makes me feel I, I don't have to be pressured to study certain topics, not to study certain topics because of the political environment of this moment. Yixing Xu, I, I can't tell you how a pleasure it's been to talk to you and to finally make your acquaintance in person. Uh, thank you so much for driving up, up to Berkeley from Stanford. And I, I can say with absolute assurance, I will be really happy to have you back on the show again because there's so much more to talk about. Thank uh, you, Kaiser. The research that you do. Uh, that's just, just wonderful. Um, let's move on to recommendations. But first, a very quick reminder that the Seneca podcast is powered by SubChina. If you like the work that we're doing with Seneca and with all the other shows in the Seneca network, please show your support by subscribing to SubChina Access, our daily email newsletter. I also want to take this opportunity to bid a very fond farewell to my colleague of nearly four years, Jason McRonald, who has been just an enormous help to us with the whole endeavor, the whole podcast network and uh, everything we do at SubChina. Uh, he has watched us grow from just the one show to nine. Jason, you will be sorely missed, and uh, we are sure that... You know, you're going to be going on to great things. Uh, if you are out there, if you're an academic out there listening and you're looking for s somebody who will be a, an extremely promising graduate student, uh, Jason will be uh, boning up for that and getting ready to take the GRE. Thanks for everything that you have done for Seneca and for SubChina, Jason. Okay, on to recommendations. Uh, I Ching, what do you have for us? I would recommend X Japan. Have you heard of them? Yeah, yeah, X Japan. Yeah, I, I really love them as a, I... Uh, start to hear them and listen to them in high school it oh, wow. blew yeah, my mind band. It was, yeah a great band so i think a lot of young people don't know them i think it's a, um it's a great band i didn't know that you were like a music guy well i'm not a music guy music guy but i still from time to time listening to music especially oh, yeah. cool 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 no that's a that's an excellent recommendation i actually by by sheer coincidence i have a band well not a band but an album by a band i want to uh recommend the album discipline by king crimson uh which uh, to my delight my musically gifted niece camille who just graduated from uc berkeley uh and is heading to taiwan soon uh has 
discovered. I mean, her father, who's a big King Crimson fan like me, um, my brother, uh, he, he familiarized her with it. Um, during my time here, I have been spending a lot of time with my delightful nieces. Uh, one of them is in med school and the other is burnishing her Chinese and getting ready to go. Just graduated from college. And, uh, with my nephew, well, much of that time has been just spent just nerding out on, on music related things. Um, my uh, late sister-in-law had a great vinyl collection and we've been going through that and stuff. But um, the Bay Area is just uh, just such an absolute treat when you don't actually have to live here and pay for it. And I've been spending just such quality time with my family here. But things are just ridiculously expensive. I, I, I'm going to be... I'm grateful that I don't actually live here. Anyway, the album Discipline, it's just, um, it's from the, this trio of albums they put out in the eighties. Uh, the other two dis, uh, sort of Discipline and then of course there's, uh, Beat and Three of a Perfect Pair, which are both great, but Discipline is, is really the one. It's just the best and it holds up just extraordinarily well. Um, you know, 30 or whatever years later, it's just a really great record. So check it out. All right, Yiching, what a what a pleasure! What is what a my what pleasure? Yeah. yeah, yeah, it was really well, fun. Yeah, we're looking forward to hanging out again. Thank you, Kyler. The Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina and is a proud part of the Seneca Network. Drop us an email at Seneca at subchina.com. Follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at, at @subchina news, and make sure to check out all the shows in the Seneca Network. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Take care. Mm-hmm.